0: Good evening. We are live. Welcome, everyone, to the first session of From Selicha to Avoda, an introduction to the liturgical poetry of Elul and Yamim Noraim with Mr. Landes. What do we pray for when we pray that God forgives us? What does repentance look like? What does it mean to be atoned? In this three-part series, we will attempt to answer these questions by looking closely at the liturgical poetry recited over the course of Elul and Yamim Noraim namely the Selifot and the Piyotin specific to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In each class, we will first address the history of each of these poetic genres before reading from the poems together, focusing on those still in use in the contemporary liturgy. Mr. Yitzlandis is PhD candidate in religions in Mediterranean antiquity, Religions of Mediterranean Antiquity. All right, that's <laughs> that's a lot, Um, at Princeton University and a lecturer in Jewish history at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. He received his BA in Talmud and Religion and his MA in Talmud from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His research focuses on Jewish liturgy and on the history of rabbinic Judaism. His first book, Studies in the Development of Mirka Ahavoda, was published in 2018. We ask that those joining us here on Zoom Please stay muted unless we're having an open discussion period. And if you would be comfortable joining us on camera, we really appreciate the feeling it lends to our learning community to be able to look around the room and see one another's faces. Feel free to type questions into the chat. If you're joining us on Facebook, post your comments below the video and we will bring them over here from Mr. Landis. And to those joining Andresha Live, hello. Without further ado, Mr. Landis.
1: Sorry, I was muted. I haven't been on Zoom in a few days and I guess I'm pretty rusty. So first things first. Can everyone see the screen that I'm showing here? Slide, great. So thank you for the introduction. So yeah, I'm, I'm yet to, to say like a few more words there. I live in Washington Heights with my wife and our two sons and eventually I'm doing my PhD. Um, so this is my second time doing this kind of thing for Drisha. I, I had long appreciated Trisha from afar from friends who have taught there and many friends who studied uh, at Drisha. Um, and already before Shavuot, I came in to do just one class kind of on one aspect of the liturgy of Shavuot. Um, so if anyone happens to have been there or to have listened to the recording of that, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of instruction to kind of pew more generally, which I also did in that class. So it might be a review for people who were there. It also might be a review for people who know this from some other way. Um, but pretty quickly, we'll move into the uh, topic at hand. And um, I just want to say again, thank you so much for coming. And I'm honored to be a part of this Zman Elul at Drisha. Um, and let's get going. So um, first of all, just kind of a quick overview of the course. So as mentioned, uh, we'll be talking about liturgical poetry and also some other aspects of liturgy that we encounter uh, in Elul and during the High Holidays. And so today, part one, I'll focus on the slichot, um, which in some rights has already began, or some of us might begin this Saturday night. Um, and also, we'll continue kind of till the end of the Chuba. Um and we'll talk next week with the Pew team and some other prayers as well of Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and the last class, which you should note, is starting at a later time because of some Gedalia, will be specifically focused actually on the sedar al of Yom Kippur, which is of course only one aspect of the liturgy of the day, but it is a very, very uh, important one, monumental one, and actually some of the things that we'll be talking about today we'll come back to again uh, when we talk about Yom Kippur because, uh, of course, slichot is also part of the Yom Kippur service. And I'll say more later about other relationships between today's class and the liturgy of Yom Kippur. So that's the general overview of the course. It's really just three parts, kind of, I think, self-explanatory. Uh, and for today's class, so we'll start off, again, with kind of a general overview of Pute, just what is Pute. And then I'll try and get through that quickly, but it's important that we have some kind of bearing, um, historically speaking, in terms of the history of the genre and the functions of the genre, uh, before we start talking about slichot properly. Uh, And then we'll look at a preliminary description um, and also the the genre's kind of main elements um, before looking at the origins and history of the genre. Uh, It's actually an exciting time to be studying (laughs) It It's not just because of right now that we are in the process of saying slichot, but also in the scholarship, there's a lot of of, um, advances that have been made uh, in the study of slikhot in recent years, even in as recently as this week, actually, I saw a new article came out, which I had not been able to get a copy of yet uh on the history of the genre so there's actually a lot of very exciting scholarship in the very 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 small field of pew that has to do with the history of slichot, and then we'll look at some examples uh, of slichot for elo and the sartu methuva and if we have time uh, we'll look also at some other timely slichot, that is slichot that relate to current events but are not specifically um are not specifically written um for for this uh, period of the year um, I hope we have time for that. I'll try and make sure that we get to that. Um, so yeah, that's the outline of today's class. So what is Pute anyway? Slide one. So basically kind of comes to mean liturgical poetry, poetry, usually in Hebrew. Occasionally there's some Aramaic as well uh, that serves to supplement the standard prayer text and even replace some of it. Right. So nowadays when you encounter Pute, it's always alongside the standard liturgy. What's important to remember is that Uh, in antiquity and into the Middle Ages, even more recently in some places, uh, this really actually replaced a lot of liturgy. Like instead of saying the actual blessings of a certain part of prayer, they would say this kind of poetic rendition of it. Um, So it comes from the Greek word "poetes," same thing, just means to do, but it ends up also in Greek, having to do specifically with stringing together of words in certain ways. It originated in the land of Israel. Um, The earliest ones that we think we know of are from the late fourth or the early fifth century. So uh, it's mentioned really on the fringes of rabbinic literature from the land of Israel. Um, and that within itself kind of shows that perhaps it wasn't such a robust practice or genre uh, during the time of the classical rabbinic period, which ends kind of in the late fourth century, but surely thereafter it picks up and we start seeing it become very, very, very popular genre um, really in the fifth and sixth centuries. Um, so we have, we talk about, scholars of talk about different periods. We talk about the pre-classical period, uh, which is the earliest kind of period of really the fourth, fifth centuries. Um, and some of the defining characteristics are that these pewte team are anonymous. We do not know who wrote them. Uh, there's no tradition, even necessarily, about who wrote them. There's no rhyme, actually, that we could, in terms of how we would think of rhyme. Uh, there's a four accent stress pattern. This is actually a key aspect of how we identify um, lines of liturgy or pewte as being of this early period. It's because you see things like, Alenu ladon ha-kol. so, Alenu's one, the Shebech, two, La Don, three, HaKol, four, and, or, it's a similar kind of four-accent stress. It's not number of syllables, it's the number of stress points. So scholars will say, if out in the wild, I see a pew or a line of poetry that works according to that pattern, it's anonymous, no rhyme, four-accent stress pattern, we could probably think that it is early, so to speak. Um, there's a lot of kind of presuppositions into how the genre works, but I actually do think <laughs> that there is some truth to this method, um, but again, we'll see Pretty quickly, how this is somewhat problematized. The classical period follows the pre-classical period, um, and we see exceedingly complex kind of works of poetry, both in terms of the rhyme scheme, also just in terms of the, the different ways in which the compositions themselves become more complicated. The references to rabbinic literature more complicated. They're longer. Uh, they're eventually signed by authors and acrostics. Right. So um, we'll get to that in a moment, but there are ways in which they kind of sign their name in the composition. So also there's a different notion of authorship uh, that be- becomes to be current in the classical period. There's increasingly complex rhyme schemes uh, and there's more and more genres and also different stress patterns. And we'll get to the, the genres of pew in a moment. So the most famous Paitanim perhaps are, are Yonai and he's actually the first Paitan to sign his name. Uh, what does that mean? That at the beginning of his, and at some point in his composition, he will start four lines in a row or Four strokes in a row uh, with the four letters of his name Yud Nun Yud Yud, which is a specifically also a way of spelling an I in the land of Israel, and antiquity is also part of how we know between one the land of Israel. Um, and the one after him, who is perhaps you know the most famous Python of the classical period, who uh, left, who a lot one of the reasons he's most popular is because uh, in antiquity already he was quite popular and his works were copied all over the place, uh, but also just he's one of the most well known because a lot of his liturgical poetry uh, is still in the Ashkenazi Mahzor and Siddur, uh, and we'll see that um, next week. Yanai, uh, for the most part, most of his work did not survive uh, into the modern period. Uh, We know of it from the Cairo Geniza, so it was disposed of in the Middle Ages, and then it was rediscovered in the 19th century. Although some of his works, uh, we think, um, might— what we think are some of his works do appear in the, the Mahzor times. We'll talk about this next week. But one thing we won't talk about, which is a very famous example of one of his compositions, is Azrov balayla, which we say in the Siddur Pesach and the Haggadah, which is one of his works. Um, but also, Elizabeth Rabbi Kalir mainly wrote compositions for holidays, where he and I wrote for just kind of regular Shabboses, uh, And that's also part of the reason why it wasn't continued, because we really only continued to recite Piyut on holidays and not on regular uh, Shabbos. Uh, and also because he wrote for the trilineal cycle and we adopted the Babylonian whatever. There's a whole a lot we can talk about there, but this is what you need to know for now. Uh, in the late period, uh, we started seeing different centers with different aesthetics. Um, so Italy and Ashkenaz are kind of one geographic zone, somewhat close to the Palestinian tradition. Um, they had already kind of been close to one another in antiquity before the rise of Islam. Uh, and then we have Babylonia and communities that directly influenced like in North Africa and Spain, um, which is a very, very different aesthetic uh, than the stuff uh, from Italy and Ashkenaz. We'll see a little bit of that later on. Um, and then as we also see, though, that eventually the Babylonian practice kind of took hold everywhere, uh, even though, as mentioned, for example, Al-Zabrabi Khalir, who was Palestinian, is still po- was still popular in Italy and Ashkenaz uh, many centuries after his death. So just quick geographic location, just to kind of put this in a map, right? So the genre started here in the land of Israel, mainly in the Galilee with the Anaya and Al-Zabrabi Khalir, pretty quickly made it to Italy. We know it was in Italy already before the rise of Islam. Eventually also after some kind of trepidation, uh, it took hold also in Babylonia, kind of the Jewish heartland here in Mesopotamia. Uh, And then following the rise of Islam, we start seeing in general, a lot of migration eastwards and the communities end up kind of propping up here and here and here. Uh, For the most part adopted the the aesthetic and practice that had begun in Babylonia. Whereas the stuff from the land of Israel kind of, you know, makes it to Italy and then to other parts of Southern Europe continues uh, that aesthetic, although eventually the Babylonian stuff kind of takes over everything. <laughs> um, so um, the last slide of introduction uh, will be on the genres of piyut. So I'll start actually with the stuff we will be talking about today, and that is ma'ariv. And these are uh, piyutim that function uh, to replace the blessings that surround the Kriyat Shema at night. Um, similarly, the Yotzer, these are piyutim that serve to accompany or replace the blessings that surround the recitation of the shema in the morning um this is mainly the one thing that it, it takes place outside of the synagogue um and these are putin written for specific occasions um usually the content relates to some kind of festive uh, um meal either for a holiday or often actually for like a,
0: a birth or a wedding
1: or things like that um which again just kind of replaces the blessings of birkat Hamazon, uh and then the kind of Biggest genre that we have, this is like there's a lot of subgenres within this, is the Krova, uh, eventually mislabeled as Krovets in medieval Mahsorem, manuscript forms. Uh, and this is the different ways in which the blessings of the Amida, um, the, the standard text, is replaced with liturgy, with liturgical poetry. Um, so the kind of the, the biggest and the most robust of those genres is the Kiddushda, which adorns the Amida when the kadusha is recited. So it is in every community whenever there's a minion, except at night, the Kedushah is always recited. In antiquity, this was not the case. And also into the Middle Ages, in the right of the land of Israel, uh, they've recited the kedusha far less common, and pretty much would only ever do it on Shacharit, uh, on Shabbat, on holidays, including holidays that you know, like Hanukkah and things like that. Um, whereas in Babylonia, they actually did recite the kedusha all the time. So the kedusha as a genre, and we'll see this next week, um, I'll talk about it more then. It kind of builds up the recitation of the Kedusha. Uh, the Shivata originally adorned the Amidah of Musaf, which as mentioned did not have a Kedusha and just had seven blessings, hence the name Shivata. We'll see next week an example which doesn't have seven blessings, it has more blessings. Um, uh, and so in some ways, like, in some ways actually it is oftentimes a shorter uh, composition. Uh, and we have complex ones in Rosh Hashanah, as we'll see in Yom Kippur. We're not going to see the first day of Pesach or Shemini but those are also ones that have exceedingly complex uh, Shivatot. Um, and then two other sub-things which happen at times in the Krova. one is the Kina, so this is a poetic insertion into the blessing of B'nai Yerushalayim, first on the ninth of A'b, and eventually also on other days. And that, Eliezer Rabbi Kalir wrote a lot of keynotes, actually, that we still recite today in the Ashkenazic, right? Um, and then lastly, we have the slikha. Um and the question is, where does that come from, right? Because Nowadays, we actually don't really encounter the slicha as part of the recitation of the Amidah, or the repetition of the Amidah, right? We encounter it elsewhere. Um, so let's look at just kind of preliminary description of the slicha. So when do we say slichot? Nowadays, we say it usually during Elo on the seratim Chuvah, either at night or in the morning, or it's preferably the kind of between midnight and dawn. Um, according to the halacha, there's different, different people will place different emphases on that, right? For a lot of people there's actually there's kabbalistic reasons about that. So you might see people who will say like, decisors like that uh, it's better to say it as opposed to not say it. So if you're not going to say it after midnight or before dawn, just, you know, say it some other time. Uh, but for a lot, a lot of people throughout Jewish history, and to this day, it's very important that they say it between midnight and dawn. Um, so we on Yom Kippur, on fast days, um, those are kind of the main times in which we say now. Um, and we'll get to the history of that in a few slides. And some of the central themes, I think anyone who has been through a few slichot and we'll see a, a number of examples in a moment, uh, could identify you know, the main themes are, man is nothing compared to God, it's difficult to pray given our nothingness and sins, our sins cause our suffering, we regret our actions, we trust in God despite the calamities that have befallen us, uh, the efficacy of the 13 attributes of mercy, right? That's a big part of um, the slichot as we'll see the merit of our ancestors, a common theme in Jewish prayer in general, especially the binding of Isaac, uh, and also just kind of, you know, just straightforward request for atonement and redemption, uh, which is, you know, the whole theme of the season. Um, There are some other sub-themes as well. We'll see in uh, some of the examples, hopefully, of how some paitanim, as we say, some authors of liturgical poetry are also able to to riff off this in more interesting ways, Uh, and this is as, a, as opposed to keynotes, which as I mentioned, is a genre that was common in Land of Israel and it was also common today, which are actually more specifically mark historical events, right? So the slicha, um will oftentimes have, especially in Ashkenaz, kind of this like, very long dray attitude towards Jewish history and the exile and the state of exile. But it is only, it is not so common that it responds or is written in light of, or in the aftermath of a specific historical event. It does happen, there are Selicha like that, that is really kind of the realm of the kina. The kina is really, you know, there was Lenu, like the destruction of the temple, a pogrom, something like that. And the kina is written to them it, moving forward to remember that. So it's a little bit, there's an overlapping theme of course but it's, it's a little bit kind of a, a slightly different um, nuance and as we'll see also a different history. So the main elements of Sikhot and the Ashkenazi, right? I guess you could say there are 11 <laughs> main elements, um, right? It oftentimes starts with the Ashrei. This is, again, I'm just going according to like the most common Slichot you'll see out there in the world. There are actually, as we see, a lot of variety in Slichot, which is somewhat interesting, but as you might encounter it on Saturday night or whenever, start to the Ashray, half Kaddish, uh, this kind of litany of, of verses, which starts with this verse from Daniel. Um, then it goes uh, verses of praise ending with Hanash And then the 13 attributes, right? That's kind of the main, that's the crux of this whole thing, is 13 attributes. Uh, Founded by PU team, remember your compassion, listen to our cry, and then there's the Vidoi Aneno Tachanonen Folkadish. Folkadish, also not in every community, but in a lot of communities, which also somewhat speaks to kind of the importance of the event, given that the Folkadish is, is not recited um, so often, really. Like it's only really recited around following really kind of significant aspects of the liturgy. So, in thinking about kind of the core of this, we see the core really is kind of right in the middle here, the 13 attributes. Some people actually might say a friend of mine has, an, has a has a really good book on stichot, Aaron um, Glatso. came out in, in Hebrew stichotim v'vorot. This is just a very good kind of addition uh, of the piyut. I'm uh, sorry, of the stichot, and they're actually translated into Hebrew, <laughs> just kind of like from difficult Hebrew into, into modern Israeli Hebrew. But he has a very nice introduction, and he's actually, he suggests actually this is somewhat actually similar to what we see in the Amidah, this kind of tripartite structure. Uh, and the gumar itself actually comments on the Amidah's structure as kind of being first we you know. Welcome God. Then we ask, have our request, and then we say goodbye. That's kind of also somewhat we see to a certain extent in the general structure of the sikhut, as they exist in uh, most most contemporary rites. Um, so at the core here is the thirteen attributes, um, and that you know goes back to the Shemot. Um, This is something which appears a lot in liturgy, not just in the context of Sikhot. Um And right, the context in the Hebrew Bible is Moses trying to kind of get God to forgive the people of Israel after Chaita Egel. And then he eventually goes up and you know gets the luchot again. Um, and so this is the text, kind of an of early text that attests the recitation of the 13 attributes uh, in uh, in liturgy. Um, and what we see here just from this passage, I'll read it out loud, is quite interesting, I think. So it says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Abi said that were not written in a text, it would be impossible for us to say such a thing, because it's a, such a wild thing what this text is describing. This verse teaches, wait for it, uh, the Holy One, blessed be he, drew his robe round him like the shaliach tibol and showed Moses the order of the prayer. He said to him, whenever Israel sin, let them carry out this service before me and I will forgive them. Uh, Rav Yehuda said, a covenant has been made with the 13 attributes that they will not be turned away empty handed, as it says, behold, I make a covenant. Um, right, so it seems like the Talmud here is already attesting, uh, in a very inadvertent kind of way or a very backwards kind of way to the fact that there already was an element of prayer at that time that incorporated the thirteen attributes, right? This was something which existed, um, and it's and it's learned from this kind of really weird story, right? Like he, it already is a pretty crazy story, like Moses, you know, trying to beseech God to like forgive the people of Israel. It's a crazy thing; it happens all the time, but it is a very very powerful thing. Um, and what the way God teaches in this, it, it doesn't actually say this is what they should, you know, I'm commanding you to say these things out loud. He's saying like he's kind of pushed in a corner and he's almost forced, according to the story, uh, to admit that there is a way to appease him or there is, a, there is some kind of outlet for those who sin. Um, and I think, again, this is going back to my friend Arla, who has this book on Slichot. He has a pretty good point in it. He's saying there's no, there's no mitzvah of, of saying the Slichot, there's no commandment. You could not be commanded to ask for forgiveness per se. You have the right, you have the merit, you have the privilege of asking for Slichot. And that's kind of why the text might be formed in this way. That's kind of how Sikhot is presented in this text, uh, is by saying um, everyone sins. You're good to sin. Um, you are not required to ask for forgiveness, but you have the privilege of asking for forgiveness. And that's why God kind of teaches us of this practice. That's why rabbis present God as teaching us this practice in this somewhat roundabout way. Um, and of course, there's no guarantee that no, you'll get what you want. But something good will happen. Something good will come of this, right? It says. A covenant has been made. Uh, they will not be turned away empty-handed. You're not going to come away, you know, with everything you want necessarily, but something good will come of it. I think it's already within itself a pretty powerful kind of uh, reflection on, on the power of asking for forgiveness and and what it might mean for us to do that vis-a-vis slichot. So, returning to the genre of slichot and the literary history of this of this genre, how early are them? Most significantly, um, whoops. Uh, where do we go here? Okay, I'll leave it like this. Slichot are entirely absent from the works of the classical Paitanim from the land of Israel, right? Yanai, El-Zabra many other Paitanim whose names, like I mentioned, who have bequeathed us a very, very large corpus, like, you know, hundreds, hundreds of compositions for every possible random day of the Jewish calendar year did not write any Slichot. And instead, what we do find often is keynotes, right? So there are ways in which they know, filled out the liturgy of Yom Kippur. On other fast days, they have keynotes that were inserted in Bunei Uchleim and Tisha B'Av, also in other ones. Um, But we have no evidence for something like the Tzlichah that is recited in the liturgy of Yom Kippur um, or at any other kind of occasion leading up to the high holidays. Um, But with that, and here's the catch, many scholars for a long time actually considered the genre of Tzlichot to be very early, Uh, And this is largely based on the style, which is similar to what we know from early pew team right so they they saw this stichot that we do have in in the sitter in the master. And they said this just feels it sounds a lot like those early pew team that we know of it has you know that four part stress symbol oftentimes. uh, uh, Four part uh, stress pattern Uh, doesn't necessarily rhyme that much it kind of just feels like the old pew team um and so. I'll say that this is what I was referring to and saying that this is something which is very live in the scholarship right now. Uh, recently, a teacher, one of my like, main teachers, Shulamita Litzur, I proposed the work of Tovah Be'eri, uh, published an article, um, actually a series of two articles arguing that the reason why it seems early is because the genre actually began in Babylonia. Right, The earliest uh, people we know of who referred to Selichot are all from Babylonia, and in Babylonia, As I kind of mentioned earlier, it took a little bit longer for pewd as a genre to become popular and to be adopted. There was some kind of opposition to it. Um, So actually the early quote unquote early aesthetic that was common in the land of Israel in the fifth century or so uh, continued long after it already had fallen out of fashion in the land of Israel. And that's why when you just go out there and see some of these, they they sound kind of early, they're written in this kind of like early style, although they actually were written later. It it speaks to some of the difficulty in actually using aesthetic as a tool for dating a composition. Um, But there's other piece of evidence here as well, namely that they first appear in Babylonian context and that the early uh, land of Israel, name never actually wrote Slichot that I think actually kind of uh, allowed this argument to actually hold water. Um, if anyone had been in my class on, on Shavuot, we also there talked about a genre that was somewhat similar in that way, the azharot of Shavuot, which also are written in this early style, but actually began in Babylonia. Uh, and it's a similar kind of series of articles in where Shalemite has, has argued for that. So where do we actually first hear of, of the stichot? And for this, we have to look at the early sitters, the first sitters that we actually have, um, the first kind of real attempts to write down the liturgy in any kind of uniform way. Uh, Sidor of Amram gone and Al-Siddur so of Sadia Gon. So Amram headed one of the yeshivas in Babylonia in the mid ninth century. Uh, Sadia, same yeshiva several decades later in the beginning of the 10th century. Uh, Rabbi Ram had been asked kind of to actually write down what the liturgy is uh, at the time in the Jewish world. There was a lot, a lot of diversity and people didn't know what to do per se. And um, they sent a letter from Spain all the way to Babylonia asking that, you know, they help them figure this out. And he talks about Slichot uh, quite a bit actually. And that diversity continued to reign. There's still a lot of diversity today, but I think one could argue that there was more diversity then. And for Rav Sadia, um, who was really an international man, I mean, he was born in Egypt and made his way to the land of Israel, eventually headed an academy in Babylonia and Baghdad. Uh, he did not like the fact that there was this diversity. And it's not as much that someone reached out to him. It's more from his own kind of uh, decision. He, he's tried to standardize the prayer. And he also talks about uh, slichot. So how do they talk about slichot? What they say is, uh, there are actually two relevant forms of liturgy that appear in the Siddurim. One is, is the slichot, and these are the piyut that appear in the repetition of the Amidah on Yom Kippur, and the blessing of Tudushat and also on the fast days, the blessing of Slach Lano. Uh, and also, in between each pew, there's the 13 attributes that are recited, right? So in some ways, you see, actually, it's almost like they can't just recite the 13 attributes over and over again, so they have to, like, recite it once, and then a piyut, and then recite it again. Um, and then there's, there's something else, which is actually somewhat more similar to what we think of today, slichot, and that's ashmarot, or actually, sometimes they call it rachamin, uh, this also appears in the manuscript in the Gneezah sometimes as like, these are, you know, Seder Rachamin, an order of Rachamin. And these are a long list of verses and, and simple P-T-M, I should say there, uh, that are recited late at night or in the morning during the 10 days of repentance and eventually also on other days as well. Um, so that is somewhat more akin to what we see now in the recitation of slichot, but the actual slichot themselves that the Go'onim talk about, um, that seem like the ones that we know of appear actually in the context of the Amidah, not in the context of these like early morning or late night vigils. Um, So over time, these two forms of prayer impacted each other greatly and were no longer actually very much distinguishable. So eventually, um, as we know, for the most part, when we come back to this, Suichot are not recited in repetition of Amidah, they're more frequently recited afterwards. Um, And since they were kind of dislodged from there, they kind of took over a lot of the a lot of things that we're familiar with from the Rachamin and from the Ashmorals, from the early morning prayers, uh, and also vice versa. Few team that had been written for recitation or petition Amidah and up kind of being dislodged from that context and repurposed, kind of in these like early morning vigil type things. So a few other things from Gaonic sources. Um, we I mentioned the Sidurim, and those are really the you know we can't talk about Jewish liturgy without looking at them, uh, but also. There's this kind of like random stuff in the Goan and talk about liturgy elsewhere. So the tour happens to conveniently bring a lot of stuff together. And he says that according to one Goan of uh, our coin Sedeq, uh, it's the custom in the two Shivas and Surah and Pumputita to say and in the 10 days of repentance. And Reb Amram says something similar. Rabbi also said just really in the 10 days of repentance. So Rabbi actually, this is the last Goanim, already in the 11th century, uh, he, he recognizes that. There are people who recite it in the entire month of Elul. He says, in our in our yeshiva, we just do it in the 10 days of repentance. Uh, and he also said, interestingly enough, in another context, uh, that they also even say them on Rosh Hashanah, and then Shabbat Shuvah, um, Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And they, they say it then as well, and also actually say then on Rosh Hashanah and Shabbat, which is not our practice today. Uh, but that's what he says. And I mean, we could say maybe the source is corrupt in some way. but it also was possible that things were different then. and There was a lot of diversity. So we're going to look at a few examples in a moment, but I just want to do a little, little bit more history because as we can see, the situation in the 11th century is still quite different than the situation today. And one of the interesting things really about slichot is that in the end of the day, it probably is like, until quite recently was one of the greatest kind of, or most diverse parts of Jewish liturgy, um, right? I mean as opposed to some other religious traditions. Until very recently, there was never like a state mandated uh, or a way to like actually forcibly um, unify uh, Jewish prayer. I mean, there were some attempts at that, like in medieval Egypt for things like for that, for example. But for the most part, you know, people in different parts of the world just, you know, prayed Jewishly however they prayed. And surprisingly enough, actually, I think actually despite all the differences, there was a lot of uniformity. Like someone who had wandered into a synagogue in Baghdad having grown up in Europe, probably would be able to at least follow what's going on. Um, But specifically for some reason with slichot, there is a lot lot of diversity. So first of all, we have kind of this, you know, the Edot and Mizrach, as we say nowadays. Um, So their practice is to begin after Rosh Chodesh Elul. Uh, It's generally actually a fixed text. There's largely just the same slichot that are recited every day. Although in a lot of North African communities, um, even to this day, some of them actually maintain um, different slichot for different days, particularly for Monday and Thursday, and in that way they kind of diverge from the other Edot Mizraḥ communities. Uh, in Italy, the practice is to start either on Monday or Thursday before Shoshana. Uh, and there actually is quite a bit of communal diversity. For some reason, in Rome, the Roman rite they, they pray according to Edot Mizraḥ, specifically on slichot, but in in uh, other parts of Italy uh, and also in the community in Jerusalem, uh, they have their own order of slichot. And in Ashkenaz, uh, so first of all, they begin um, using the Saturday night before Shoshana, so long as there is four days of Stichot. So this year, for example, we'll start even earlier because there won't be four days between the last Saturday night before Shoshana. And there's huge diversity between the communities to the point that uh, actually three different Ashkenazic rites made it to print, uh, which is a relatively diverse thing for Ashkenazic liturgy. Um, But following the Holocaust, the diversity greatly diminished. Um, So first of all, almost no community continues to recite Sikhot in the context of the Amidah uh, on days other than Yom Kippur. Um, And also just there's basically only two or three Ashkenazic rites now. There's a lot, there's far fewer ones than there were in the past. Um, There's a lot to be said for that, about migration, uh, obviously, um, and you know, communities that were decimated or communities that only had a few survivors who ended up joining with members of other communities. Specifically, uh, the place of Pew in the Siddur following the Holocaust a lot of that has to do also with the land of Israel, uh, with the state of Israel, that is. Um, a lot of us to do with Abadi Yosef, actually, uh, pushing back in the Baghdadi tradition against recitation of Pewte in the Amidah. Um, and that had a very, very strong kind of uh, impact on the siddur in general, but also it's for aesthetic reasons, perhaps. But there always was this tension earlier between the Babylonian rite and the non-Babylonian rite uh, as to how much they could actually kind of like disrupt the regular order of liturgy in order to insert pew. Okay, um, we'll also just see, this is kind of just getting ahead of ourselves, that there may be a, ge- a little bit of a general difference in content uh, across the rights. But that's the introduction. I think that was a half an hour or so, maybe a little less. What time is it? And now we will go on to some specific examples. I know there might be questions now, but I think for the purposes of, of the class, it's, it's kind of might be the best to just be the questions for the end. Uh, unless something is like really urgent you can put it in the chat. Okay, so here are some common slichot and some associated prayers. Um, we will not read all of them, I think, given the time. Um, but this is, you know, one of the most famous ones. Um, the first night is often like the biggest night, uh, you know, as you say uh, in the Ashkenazic rite, when most people come out, like the largest number of people come out to hear slichot. Um, we actually don't know who wrote this one. Uh, it seems like it was an Ashkenaz in the eleventh century. There is some. There is some reason to think perhaps it could have been written in Italy. Um, but because it specifically refers to Saturday night, uh, and we, as I mentioned earlier, in the Italian right at least today, they usually don't start on Saturday night. It seems like it was probably Ashkenazic. Um, so after the departure of the Sabbath, we approach you in prayer. right um, incline uh, your ear from on high you who are enthroned upon praises and then a quote from kings from solomon's prayer hear our cry and our prayer Raise your almighty right hand to act valiantly against our accusers for the sake of isaac the righteous one who is bound and whose stead a ram was slain shows his descendants as they cry to you while it is yet night and hear our cry and our prayer so again um, after that, this kind of general introduction, we see quite immediately how they turn to this figure of, of Isaac and specifically to kind of the merit of the ancestors, which is this very, very common mechanism in liturgy, and specifically also uh, in the stichot. And then we get to the kind of this general thing of mm-hmm. General kind of request, turn to those who seek you when they seek your presence, be accessible to them from your heavenly boat. Um, I'm trying to think anything else to point out here I don't I think maybe it's worth reading one so we can just get like an idea of what goes on in the in the before we look at some kind of more unique examples right they tremble and quake at the day of your coming as a woman giving birth the first time from the burning wrath you carry to wipe away their filth that they may praise your wonders you created everything as you prepared from old the remedy to save them from distress and that's also a very very common theme and that's that chuva had been created actually already before creation right so they are constantly referring in the in endless the to chuva um, as this antiquated thing and also to this idea that God couldn't actually have created the world um, without the ability for repentance to occur without the mechanism of chuva which is again also, I think a very poignant kind of image, right? I and mean, it goes back also to what we talked about in the Bhagavat and how the Bhagavat presents God as teaching Moses uh, this mechanism of of the of the thirteen attributes. And again, like whatever that means theologically, like God had cre- even when creating the world, He knew that bad things would happen, <laughs> and therefore He had to create a way for man to kind of uh, atone. Um, i cry- oh, sorry, yeah, uh, by bestowing a deserve grace upon them from your hidden treasure. Um, if the sins of your congregation are great, uh, um, strengthen them. We pray from the treasured store in your abode. The community is praying, um, turn to our sufferings and not to our sins. Um, God who performs wonders listen to their supplication. Uh, Lord, hear our cry in prayer. Lastly, we would say, be pleased and accept their pleadings as they stand at night. with favor as the offering of burnt offerings. show them your miracles. See who does great things. Hear our cry in prayer. And again, here we see reference to the time of day, right, which is also interesting. Right. It's specifically that they are praying at night. And of course, it also started with that. We have this nice kind of beginning with the night, the we'll Motsei, and ending with the night as well. And that that is kind of the time to do Shuba. Um, I think we'll just look at uh, this one quickly. So that comes from that That one is recited at kind of the beginning of the Ashkenazic Rite. Uh, this one is recited, it's a very brief one. Um, at various points in the and in, in different rites, but mainly in the Ila, That's where we know it from, kind of the end of Yom Kippur, uh, and it's written by a guy named Amitai Bar Shvatia Bar Amitai. So we don't always know if it's Amitai Bar Shvatia Bar Amitai or Amitai's grandfather Amitai, um, but we think it was probably the grandson because that's most of the piyutim that we have of him. Uh, who's, if that is the case, he lived in South Italy in the late 9th century, and so one of the things that's interesting about that, according to source theory, if it started in Babylonia. It got, it, you know, it, it it really became very popular in Italy, um, pretty fast. So I'll that, tell you a little bit about also this the geography of the Jewish world and how knowledge and aesthetics and practice was moving quite quite quickly uh, across different regions, also across empires. I mean, they were not in, they were not under Islam. Um, so the thinking is that actually after each kind of like few lines of piyyut, they would actually say the thirteen uh, attributes, and in some rights that is also the case today. I remember, O oh God, and I moan, when I see every city built in its sight, and the city of God is humbled at the bottom of the pit, and yet we cleave to God and our eyes look to God. I actually find his, his poetry like beautiful. <laughs> so I really like reading it out loud. But um, in his work, you also feel the exile I this, it's very sensory, his, his poetry. Uh, inter- you know. Oh, in a second. This is... Uh, my internet went bad for a second. Divine mercy, intercede for us, and before your possessor present our occasion, and on behalf of your people, plead for compassion, for every heart is faint and every head is ill. Um, so the question also is here is, is who is he actually referring to? (laughs) Who is he actually speaking to? Uh, So the thinking is here that he actually isn't speaking directly to God. He's speaking to some kind of intercessor, uh, which is, I think we'll get back to in a moment, which comes up in some that there is kind of these intermediaries who, you know, bring our prayers before God. Um, I support myself with the thirteen attributes, and rely on the gates of penitent tears, which are never joined. Therefore, I poured out my prayers before Him. I trust in these and in the merit of the three patriarchs. kol priot oteno um, so maybe you will you who hears the voice of weeping that you place our tears in your skin flask of tears for preservation and save us from all cruel decrees for to you alone do our eyes focus so amitai it's a very short poem uh i just say you could see here that he signs his name right amitai uh he oftentimes is actually even just has in these poems it's like quite a quite a long kind of it's a whole it's a whole thing right he he starts off with you know his own physical situation and his experience in the exile seeing this, like, you know, how the world functions, but his own home city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And then he, he kind of turns away and, and starts praying to someone, to some kind of angelic intercessor to help him. Um, and then he gets to this kind of point of saying, well, actually, I can do this. Like, I can rely on the, on the 13 attributes, um, on the fact that, you know, the hev- heaven is open hearing our, our cry, uh, on the fact that I can pray, and the fact that, you know, I can rest assured um, based on the merit of our, of our fathers. Um, and then oftentimes he kind of comes off of that. He's saying, like, I know that that assuredness or the, my willingness to kind of speak in that way might be going a little bit too far. And I have to kind of end with this almost very basic prayer of just like, maybe you will that you hear my prayers. Uh, and that's the specific kind of arc that we see in a number of his, of his I will hopefully see another one in a few minutes. But just briefly on that element of who is he praying to if not to God, this is something which has come up a lot in the history of Stichot, the extent to which the Paitenium are, are willing to actually to do that, to, to admit that, or to the fact that they even have this belief per se, um, that there are folks out there in heaven who are helping our prayers along, has scandalized <laughs> said at least uh, a lot of Jews over the course of history, and it perhaps is, you know, most prevalent uh in the debates around rachamim, right? angels of mercy bring our plea for compassion before the presence of the lord of mercy right uh this this prayer which appears kind of appended to a lot of slots um which is referred to as rachamim, uh, but it, it goes on and also you know refers to kind of a whole different groups uh, of angels who are charged with bringing forward the prayer into heaven it's a belief that is extremely ancient in judaism i mean you see this going back like thousands of years um, but to the modern year, uh, at times, this has, you know, been scandalous. Um, personally, I love these prayers. <laughs> um, and it's also, I think, a very, very poignant image uh, to think about, you know, just kind of how serious tshuva is, that there is kind of this whole industry in heaven that is kind of working and trying to, like, appease God, something which was very real for a lot of people. And uh, I think still might—it's interesting to think, like, how we could actually think about that, given— how we oftentimes think about god nowadays and it's a shame in my opinion to kind of just like get rid of it because it is something which is so entrenched in jewish liturgy um so let's just see um one thing we could look at quickly so i just want to just bring this one from Rebino gershom um one thing that's interesting is to see is actually like Amitai, we really know of mainly as you know taitan but in ashkenaz you know there's plenty of people who we know of who were halachists and also wrote poetry and wrote about it's like rabino gershom we know him probably more for other reasons. is Gola. we know him as uh, someone who wrote also poetry, um, and his and specifically the one that he wrote, his sikha that we recite today uh, before Rosh and Arab Rosh and also in some communities in some Gedalia, uh, really kind of stretches out the whole exile thing quite a lot. So that's kind of what you need to know about that, and it's it's very important for him. Golah, or Golah, right? Exile after exile. That's kind of like uh, a lot of. The main themes in his in his in his uh, um, and again the similar kind of mechanism of you know rita vot mohotva Right, he adds, in also the matriarchs there, and also the tribes as someone who is covenant with God should be called upon in prayer. Rashi also has one, <laughs> which is perhaps surprising to some people. He also jack of all trades, uh, also wrote poetry, um, and he his one which. Um, this is actually, I think it does add a little bit to what we see in general. We already saw the theme of the uh, of the tshuva having been created before creation. And the slicha of his that has made it into the contemporary siddur is really just about that. It kind of dwells on this idea of like all the different things that were created before creation to ensure that the world could function alongside tshuva, right? So he starts off by saying mm-hmm. even before the clouds were stretched above and the soil was not yet even joined together. Seven things were created, the Torah, the divine throne, and the remedy for rebellious children. So that's some of them. And The beauty of paradise, the flames fell and a place of atonement by virtue of the offerings. Glory to the Messiah which had been, uh, all these were created 2000 years before the creation of the inhabited earth. So that's kind of the thing that he picks up. Um, and then this one, so in summary though, I just want to say, I think the things that we can point out, there are many, many more from the Ashkenazi right and from the Italian right, which ended up kind of being incorporated in a lot of the Ashkenazi contexts. But we saw some of the main themes as being the idea of tshuva kind of having been created, you know, before the beginning of the world, um, a very, very big focus kind of on the state of exile like, um, and also kind of the mechanisms of avot, the merit of our forefathers, even the member of our foremothers in the case of Rabbeinu Gershom. Um, and the fact that, you know, God in the end will hopefully listen to us and we have sinned. One of the things that I think is notable about that is the way in which it actually is very much framed in almost like a, this kind of national way, right? It's the Jewish people have sinned we have sinned. It's very much kind of phrased uh, in that language. Of course, there are some prayers that appear along the slichot that are a little more individualized or individualistic, but there is this kind of tone, more generally speaking, and I do think we could say this in very, very general terms, that has kind of this like, on the national scale, this is what has happened, this is what we are doing. Uh, that's quite different from what we see in a lot of the slichot of the This is perhaps one that is most pointed in that regard, and that is quite famous, it kind of starts off the It also speaks to the time of day in the early morning. Why are you sleeping? Also referencing Yona here. Why are you sleeping? Arise, call out with supplications. Um, it's specifically, you know, pointing, not towards God per se, but like specifically to the individual. out speech, seek forgiveness to the Master of Masters. Tahal ותרם ימים בונים, מהר ערוץ לעזרה לפני שוכן וגם רשם, ברח הוא פחד מהסונים. Uh, and then it kind of turns towards uh, God. אנשי שמחה יהודי ישראל נמנים, לך עדנה הצדקה ולנבושת הפנים, עמוד כגבר והתקבר, להתפעדות על חטאים. כאל דרוש, בחוב דרוש, לחפר על פשעים, כי העולם לא נעלם, ממנו נפלאים. בכל מהמר ראשי ימר לפניו נקראים, אמר, הוא ירחם, עלינו יקרא but there is this kind of, generally speaking, this the tone here is, much, of course, it does speak in the general terms of Israel and God, but it is very much kind of focused on individual. And that kind of picks up in other ones the Mizrach as well. Um, this is also, known, which is very early, but we don't know exactly who wrote it. <speaking in Hebrew> Shamir ma'amilel, right? From my evil impulse finding uh, ruses to evilly plot, protect me. It's just like very psychological kind of, psychologically torn image of the individual who is a sinner who is trying to confess and pray. So, very tough stuff. I really like the uh, as well. Uh, but it is interesting, and I, I have no real explanation for it. Um, it could be kind of, some will argue whatever, that's just kind of a specific aesthetic that was common in these different parts of the world in the Islamicate versus Christian Europe um but it is it is noticeable it's definitely a noticeable thing that like there is this kind of different not just kind of the musical aesthetic but also the, the the content has a little bit of a different kind of understanding or different focus again not to say that we don't have elements of of each and each right there's still also other nationalistic stuff in a Mizraḥ, and there still are the individual stuff in ashkenaz but the general kind of tenor is a bit different um so we have 10 minutes left i wanted to just introduce one last licha um, and this is a little bit from in an the Yoma. And uh, this is for plague and epidemics. Um, so I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of diversity between communities. Um, and it does seem actually like there were moments in Jewish history in which really weren't that fixed, actually, like you could just kind of go up there and say whatever you thought was appropriate for the specific occasion. Uh, and of course, also, there were other occasions in which you know folks would decide that we have to get together and have a fast day and have all the liturgy of a fast day and recite stichot because of whatever calamity is currently facing us. Uh, and of course epidemic is one that we all know far too well. And that has occurred many times throughout Jewish history to the point actually that there are a whole assortment of stichot that were written uh, to be recited on the occasion of a of a, uh, of a plague or an epidemic. Um, so they're kind of I guess it's most common to see this collection of them. There are some in other rites as well, but in Mazzo Roma, which is kind of like the Italian right, uh, there is kind of a series of, of three um, different slichot. You have them right here. Uh, and oftentimes, these appear together whenever. They always kind of appear, the three of them together. Uh, and oftentimes, it's, it's preface to this kind of, uh, the title is Al-Ribuia Cholim, an, an event in which many, many are sick. Um, eventually, this was printed as well um, in the early modern period in Mantua um but this is from a manuscript from far earlier from the early 14th century uh and specifically i would like to look at the one that appears in the middle here actually which i think is is the earliest we have um to be recited on the occasion uh of a, of an epidemic or of other forms of mass illness um so that's one that we're looking at um, right? So, for this, the earth shall mourn as no person can close the breach, and nobody releases the varmint from their hand. The ill are thus confronted with death and destruction. Although we have sinned and disobeyed, behold, yet our ancestors merit in our hands. Please do not change your manner with us, and may you quickly bring forth for your healing. After the beginning, it stands, right? Tshuva, the form of repentance, the ability to repent exists from before creation, a way for the rebellious daughter, for Israel to repent. Your measure of mercy, do not withhold, for the left hand pushes away and the right brings close. Tachaluim ...illness, plague, and affection befit the comfortable and the amused, but not a nation that is tired and weary, whose days are short and bitter." Right? So here's kind of one of the main places in the, in, the, in the where we see the idea that there is an epidemic going on or some kind of mass illness, and it says specifically like, this is not for us, like people of Israel have suffered too much. <laughs> Uh, not saying necessarily other people should be sick, but it's saying other people can withstand this, whereas people of Israel cannot extend, cannot, cannot kind of withstand this as well. Um, right? Because the people of Israel, day by day, they await their salvation. They're filled with weariness and fatigue, whether from the evil decree. This kind of seems to be a reference to some kind of anti-Jewish practice on the part of the non-Jews surrounding them or from the plague that strikes at every hour. Uh, Lord, if we have amassed that and the time has come to collect the bond, look from heaven upon the tired ones for it is in your hand to reduce or to increase. Our lives in your hands, Our secure deposit, whether to live or to die. Heaven forbid a disquisition of rage, for we have sinned and you did what is right. May your compassion and kindness spring forth. On the nation of your servants and witnesses, command the plague from your honorable mouth. It is enough to stay thy hand. Raise up a cure and a medicine for the nation that is sick, sad and suffering, for to you it cries out and looks, and let not your people be plagued. Um, so multiple references to, to kind of plague or, or mass illness here. Um, and again, kind of, we see this kind of structure in which like, it kind of, it starts off kind of uh, saying that we did all these things wrong. Uh, but, you know, tshuva exists from before, from before the creation, and there is this way for us to atone and therefore to have this no longer kind of uh, afflict us. Um, and then there's this part when it's almost kind of like chatsuf. it's almost kind of like a thing that it's a very, very strong argument to say, this is not for us, like we have suffered enough, which is something which seems almost surprising that the, the Paitan would be willing to kind of speak in such a direct kind of way about how difficult it is and to tell God, like, don't do this to us, Like we can't do this, we can't get through this. And the Python actually kind of realizes that, right, he says, um, where is it? right, right towards the end here, right, Khalilah Nuhum to omet. like, this actually isn't, like, we're not trying to, like, don't take me the wrong way. Like, I know that I have spoken very directly here about how, like, you know, we really, really uh, cannot live through this and that you really, really have to forgive us, but actually, you know what? Do what you need to do. You are the one who knows best. (laughs) Hopefully, you'll do what is good for us, but do not take this prayer as having been overstepping something uh, in, in the way that we were talking to you. And let us... Somehow get some kind of uh, medicine for this, for this, uh, for this illness. Um, so just one thing we we'll look at again. This is our front Amitai, right? This is how it starts off there. He wrote the slicha in South Italy in the late 9th century. But instead of just signing his name, he also added another few lines there. Amitai right? Amitai shall live. Which I think is a very, very powerful thing to say, right? So it's, it's he's kind of inserting himself. This is like a lot of this that we have seen from Italy and Ashkenaz is written in this kind of group uh, dynamic. It's written as if it's from the perspective of a plural. Uh, but he's able to insert himself as the author also in there as an individual um, who will live on, not just surviving the pandemic, hopefully, but also will live on Amitayi um, Chieh by the very fact that he authored this, uh, which I think is a very, very powerful thing to see. And again, written over a 1,000 years ago, but <laughs> beautiful, beautiful poetry. And very very poignant of course for our times given that we are unfortunately kind of under somewhat similar circumstances um so yeah have some time for questions now um some of these themes will come up again next week and again i mentioned already now uh that specifically yom kippur we'll talk again a little bit about some um so that's in two weeks from now we have three to four minutes now for questions if anyone has anything other modern stichot? i don't know that much modern stuff yeah i could try to look into that i was wondering about that as well cuz we, we will see for example in al that there are modern examples of al but i don't have anything really from Slikhot. maybe someone else does i don't know <laughs> yeah the 13 attributes are, it's almost as if each srikhara is like an excuse to recite them again because after each stichot, they would they would recite the 13 attributes um, so it's it is the common thing. That's the most common thing to see. Mm-hmm. What was the rhetorical indication that the was addressing an in intermediary? Uh, um, specifically, the reference to Midat Rachamim and then Konech. So, it was as if it was like referring specifically to something that was Midat Rachamim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah not as explicit as Machnisei that's like, that's like that is obviously like specifically referencing groups of angels, um, but even Midat Achamim and Konech, I think some people had found that kind of problematic at different points in Jewish history.
0: So, wonderful. Thank you, Mr. Landis, for a wonderful class, and thank you everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We truly appreciate having you all all as part of Drisha's learning community. We're going to continue with our El programming uh, Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern with the second session of Rabbi Silver's class in Mission of Guilt, Compassion and Repentance, which focuses on Tanakh. You're welcome to join us for that for any and all classes during our ELLs month And of course we hope to see you back in this class for the second session same time next week. And please be well.